welcome you to the John A. Witzow Foundation podcast on the New Testament. Uh, I have as my guest and a dear friend, Craig Blomberg. Uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg was professor at uh, Denver Seminary, professor of New Testament, uh, uh, and we're grateful to have him. Let me just say for the benefit of those who haven't joined us before, the purpose of, of this particular monthly uh, presentation is to take a segment of the Come Follow Me and focus on it in, in some detail. And um, this isn't for scholars, though we're happy to have scholars watch. We're thinking of people who are interested and want to know more about the New Testament and the life of Jesus. And so that's what we're about. Craig Blomberg, uh, tell us about yourself. Take one minute, give us a, a blurb on yourself. I am from Northern Illinois. I was raised in a Lutheran family. I consider my uh, real coming to Christ as a result of being invited to a Youth for Christ Campus Life Club in my high school. I thought I wanted to be a high school math teacher. Both my parents were public school teachers, but uh, God eventually led me to seminary, and um, I picked up a wife there as a bonus, and then we headed overseas for three years of doctoral study in Aberdeen, Scotland, back in the early 1980s. I taught for three years at Palm Beach Atlantic College, now University in West Palm Beach, Florida, and then we came to Denver in the uh, fall of 1986. I retired uh, from full-time teaching at the end of 2021, but I'm continuing to teach one course a semester and do lots of other things. And of all the uh, scholarship that I might have dreamed about, uh, the one that never came remotely across my radar was uh, spending more than 20 years with the uh, people who are now good friends within the Latter-day Saint community and having an evangelical Mormon dialogue, which has just been fabulous. Let me say quickly that the reason Craig is so so crucial to that dialogue is that Craig and Stephen Robinson wrote a book that was published in 1997 called How Wide the Divide. And it was a remarkable book uh, and, and affected a lot of people, still continues to affect people, uh, in which Craig and Stephen took four or five, four or five basic topics, Latter-day Saint perspective, uh, evangelical perspective, uh, what can we agree on, what things would we definitely have disagreements on, things of that sort. And so, as Craig said, uh, we've been dear friends now for 23 years, hard to believe, Craig. So, um, let's Let's then turn, if we can, to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to talk about the parables of Jesus, and we've, we only have time to do certain ones, but uh, we have some picked out. Um, in Matthew 13, let's start um, with the parable of the sower. Craig, why don't you read it? You're reading, I assume, from the New International Version, right? I will. You had a hand in, in the most recent version of the NIV, did you not, in producing That's true. it? So you read to us the NIV of uh, verses 1 through 
uh, what, uh, nine. And do you want the interpretation then after that? After that, in... we'll, after that, we'll talk about it. So just do verse nine. Then. Yeah. Okay. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Okay. Um, I'll just throw out one point and see if we're in agreement on this. It seems to me, Craig, and, and uh, you can comment on this. It seems to me, as I it, as I read this again and again, it seems that it's that it, at least one uh, reading of the thing is it's about spiritual receptivity. The, w to what extent a person receives the message of of Christ mm -hmm. in their life. Say say more about that. Exactly. Um, the seeds presumably were all pretty much the same from a large basket that. An ancient farmer would walk through his field, uh, tossing about by hand. And uh, the difference was entirely in the soils. And so we have here uh, four different kinds of soil. Um, actually, the path probably didn't have much soil at all. So um, the seeds couldn't take root. And you're right. Um, depending on what was in the soil. Um, either the plants sprung up for a short period of time, uh, or in the case of the good soil, they actually bore the fruit, uh, the crop that the farmer was looking for. Yeah, you know, it, it, we, it might be just as appropriate, I think, to call this the parable of the soils. Yes. Because uh, it's really not about the soil. Okay. Anything else we ought to say about this? Jesus goes on and gives his interpretation. I think some of the words that I just love, um, where does he pick up with the interpretation? Um, oh, verse 13. Yeah. Let me, let me start there. No, sorry. Um, uh, 18. 18. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word and anon or readily, immediately, with joy receives it. Yet hath he not root, he doesn't have root in himself, but dureth endureth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, by and by he is offended or stumbles or falls away. 
He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world. And I love this phrase and the deceitfulness of riches choke mm -hmm. the word and he becometh unfruitful. Craig, you've done a lot of work on on the handling of money, more particularly the handling of wealth, the deceitfulness of riches. Say something about that. Riches are not uh, anywhere in the Bible inherently evil or deceitful, but they are one of the greatest ways that um, people can be seduced into uh, outright sin or um, apathy for spiritual things or a partial uh, religiosity that doesn't really give wholehearted commitment to God. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is this is something from Hugh Nibley, uh, one of uh, one of our great 20, uh, 20th century defenders of the faith. He says, wealth is a jealous master who will mm -hmm. not be served half-heartedly and will suffer no rival, not even God. In return for unquestioning obedience, wealth promises security, power, position, honors, in fact, anything in this world. Along with this, everyone dresses in the height of fashion. The main point being always that the proper clothes are expensive. The expression costly apparel occurs occurs 14 times in the Book of Mormon. And here's here's the, the clincher. He says, the more important wealth is to a person, the less important it is how one gets it. And I think that's that's a, a sobering thought, you know, to the extent that it that it consumes a person. Um, you're in trouble. And, you know, and, it, it, the, the, money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is right. the root of Paul And say. you could probably take uh, um, Dr. Nibley's quote and simply uh, put the word God in, in place of wealth and everything yeah. would still be true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <clears throat> he isn't served half-heartedly and he brooks no rivals. Uh, okay. uh, a, uh, a popular level writer on the parables um, from the late 20th century, a man by the name of, of John Purdy, uh, certainly no uh, light uh, at the level of, of Dr. Nibley, but he wrote, um, if we hold that true wisdom is to be rich toward God, then work will have a limited place in our lives. We will work hard enough to provide the necessities. We shall leave the future in God's hands we will not make work a means of securing our lives against all possible calamities. Yes. End of quote. As as if we ever could. I've I've thought in, in this I've thought about this little phrase. We're in trouble if our possessions begin to possess us. Um, we've yeah. lost control at that point. Uh, let, let's talk about the the parable of the. Um, wheat and the tares and let's let's have let's paraphrase this one craig uh why don't you give us a paraphrase and let's talk about it um a man planted seed and uh, while he was sleeping an enemy came and in the most sophisticated ancient form of bioterrorism known um planted <laughs> weeds uh, in the same field um a kind of weed uh, that was known as Darnell that was very poisonous, very noxious, and whose uh, 
the roots were long and often would get entangled with anything else growing nearby it. That's not part of the paraphrase, that's my commentary. <laughs> and uh, so when the uh, seeds sprouted, um, here was this hopeless field with uh, wheat and weeds mixed all together. And uh, one of the uh, farmer's servants said, uh, shall we go out weeding? And he said, no, this, this isn't going to work. Um, you're going to not recognize uh, all the weeds correctly because they looked a lot like a wheat plant. And even if you pick the right ones to pull up, you may pull up the wheat along with it. Just let it grow till harvest time. And uh, don't worry, there's, there's going to be a harvest. Yeah. Um, if we're talking about people being that are in 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 this case in our midst as it were who who have an evil influence let's say yeah a, or a degrading influence early on it's hard to separate them out from everyone else until in a sense they really begin to show themselves it becomes more manifest what they what they are and who they are uh is that how it strikes you yes um this to me is a, there's some parables that are just plain old scary. Uh, this is one of them to me, because, you know, you did, like you said, uh, the tares for time, I suppose, resemble, or at least, as you say, are connected with the wheat. Yeah. And if you just go out, I mean, from a Latter-day Saint perspective, what if we said, well, let's go out and excommunicate everybody that breaks the word of wisdom, that starts smoking. Um, no, we, we can't do that. Uh, we've got to have the the tent has to be large enough to take in all kinds and types of people. In the end, some people may have to face up to the Lord for what they've done or not done. But in the interim, the wheat and the tares dwell together. It's interesting because as as far back as the four uh, hundreds of the writings of Augustine. Uh, there has been this this interpretive tradition that that tends to limit the the parable to uh, you've got real believers and fake believers together in your church, uh, and that may be true. But what's interesting is when we get to the explanation that Jesus gives, he says the field is the world. And so he's really contrasting true believers with unbelievers anywhere, including the ones that seem most obviously uh, dead set against uh, the things of the Lord. Right. And how often in the history of the church has there been the temptation to try to prematurely eradicate evil people from the world? I could come too, Craig, couldn't it, in let's say, in terms of even scriptural interpretation. In other words, a person takes a, makes an interpretation that many would consider to be uh, at variance with what others see, and they begin to see the person as uh, troublesome, as uh, someone who is bordering on heresy, let's say. Mm -hmm. And you've, you've seen that over the years, we've seen it. Uh, but but again, we we can't excommunicate everybody because they don't believe exactly like we do. And and we can't go out if we think about the 
the people in the world who pretty clearly aren't believers and say, um, as I'm starting to hear, even in political circles these days, let's create more than one nation. Let's talk about places where it's safe to be a believer. Let's all rush and live in one place. Uh, I believe there was a time in your history in the 19th century where there was a desire for everyone to come. We're going to, to get as far away from the United States as possible. And uh, my goodness, what goes around comes around. And how in the world are believers ever the salt of the earth and the light of the world if we were to do that? Yeah. Uh, Jesus' message that we, we really do have to be in the world. <laughs> we live in the world. And you're right. What what kind of influence for good can you have if if you're never with people who are, who are, who are struggling, who are who are, who are maybe even worrisome? Uh, we can't have any influence. So maybe even just, hostile. <laughs> that's right, or hostile. Um, again, that the tent has to be large enough to take in all types and shapes and sizes. Okay. Let's go to one of, I think both of us love this one. Let's go to Matthew chapter 20 and talk about the labors in the vineyard. This one moves me to the core. <laughs> Frightens me a little bit too. I think Craig, why don't you um, why don't we read this one? In other words, we go ahead and read through 16, and then let's talk mm -hmm. about it. Okay. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to buy workers, to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Pause about there. Nine... You said, the word there is denarius, isn't it? Yes. About a work, a one day, a one day work. Uh, Minimum right. wage for one day's work. Yep. Okay. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He said to them, "You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right." So they went. He went out again about noon, and about three in the afternoon, did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. 
Thank you. Um, let me read you. This is Elder Holland. We'll come back and talk about it ourselves. But I remember this is from the um, April 2012 General Conference. Elder Holland, speaking about this parable, said, Brothers and sisters, there are going to be times in our lives when someone else gets an unexpected blessing or receives some special recognition. May I plead with us not to be hurt and certainly not to feel envious when good fortune comes to another person? This parable is about God's goodness. His mm -hmm. patience, his forgiveness, the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a story about generosity and compassion. It is a story about grace. It underscores the thought I heard many years ago that surely the thing God enjoys most about being God is the thrill of being merciful, especially to those who don't expect it and often feel they don't deserve it. However late you think you are, however many chances you think you've missed, However many mistakes you feel you've made or talents you think you don't have or however far from home and family and God you feel you've traveled, I testify that you've not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. It is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines. Um, give your, your your insights on this, Craig. Uh, we talked it's, before. We talked that, a few weeks ago about how, how significant this parable is. That's, that's a beautiful quotation. Um, I had studied a lot and read a lot before I think it really dawned on me that there could have been a way that Jesus could have told the story and people might have legitimately claimed this is unfair. If he had given the people who had worked only one hour what they expected, which would have been one twelfth of a denarius, and then proceeded to give everybody else one twelfth of a denarius, because now he would be reneging on the promise made at least to the first group that they would get a full day's wage. But when no one gets less than what they have been promised, but some people get more, we don't have any right to be envious or jealous but boy we sure we sure tend to be that way um, whatever the latest but whatever the latest product is i mean the listening audience viewing audience would be appalled at the ancient um android that i use as a cell phone um but it still does everything i need it to do and each time an upgrade comes out, I ask myself, do I need to be able to do something that this new model does? And so far, the answer is no. And so I don't get one. But if I look at all my friends who have them with bells and whistles, I can easily start to get the wrong attitudes. And yeah. there's no reason for it. You know, um... Years ago, I was with an older gentleman, professor at uh, BYU, and we were chatting. And we were talking about life here and life hereafter. And I said, you know, I just, I just want to get what I deserve. And he looked at me and said, Bob Millett, you better pray to God every day of your life that you don't get what you deserve. <laughs> well, he's right. I mean, I don't want to get what I, I deserve. Uh, I've often, I, I read once that someone defined mercy and grace this way. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. 
grace is getting what you don't deserve. You know, there's there's a wonderful joke that I will try to dramatically abbreviate to make the point <laughs> and lose most of its power. But it's about a professor with a large class and three assignments over the course of a semester. And after the first due date, let's say there are 100 students in the class, 25 don't turn it in on time, beg for grace. And he says, I'll give you an extra week. At the second due date, the word's gotten around, 50 people don't turn it in on time. And they come and they beg for grace or mercy uh, either way. And again, they're given an extra week. End of the semester, 75 people don't have the last paper ready on time. They go almost self-assured to the professor saying, um, we get another grace week, right? The man says, no, this is the end of the semester. I, I don't have the authority to do that. And what do they all cry out in unison? That's not fair. <laughs> to which he replies, oh, it's fairness that you want. Then all of you who are late on any paper will automatically fail that mm. assignment. That would be fair. That would be fair. That's what was in the syllabus. <laughs> Let me tell you, here's a cute but interesting story. It was actually the last semester I taught at BYU before I retired. I had a, a class that was sort of challenging. Um, for one thing, I'd never had this happen, but the number of classes that students were missing was unbelievable. And I had put in the syllabus, take three classes, use them however you wish. I, I won't hold you for that. But after that, I'll begin taking a little bit off of your final grade. Well, this one girl, this is a two-hour class, and this one girl, this one young woman, she she missed 18 class periods. Now, if you take out tests and uh, and holidays, you're only <laughs> going to have 25, 27 classes. Well, as I sat staring at those, those oh, by the other thing, too, she skipped an exam. I forgot that. And I sat there thinking, it's really horrible to give somebody an F in religion. Uh, but I got it. So I gave her a D. A few days later, some days later, when she got her grade, she came in storming into my office and said, how do you explain this? And I said, two words, pure grace. <laughs> no, I mean, let me, let me read you a different approach to this. This is Elder Oaks, President Oaks at the October 2000, he takes another, a different sort of look at this. And he says, the final judgment is not just an evaluation of a sum total of good and evil acts, what we've done. It is an acknowledgement of the final effect of our acts and thoughts, what we have become. It is not enough for anyone just to go through the motions, the commandments, ordinances, and covenants of the gospel are not a list of deposits required to be made in some heavenly account. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a plan that shows us how to become what our Heavenly Father desires us to become. Like other parables, the parable of the labors in the vineyard can teach several different and valuable principles. For present purposes, its lesson is that the master's reward and the final judgment will not be based on how long we have labored in the vineyard. We do not obtain our heavenly reward by punching a time clock. What is essential is that our labors in the workplace of the Lord have caused us to become something. 
For some of us, this requires a longer time than for others. What is important in the end is what we've become by our labors. So you could take this parable and look at it from different directions. But yes, this is one of my favorites. And I think it is, it's a sobering parable. There's, there's a well-known Latter-day Saint scholar who wrote a wonderful little book on the parables called Lost and Found, Reflections on the Prodigal Son. Sounds and suspicious. As, to me. I, as I was reviewing his work for this interview, I discovered on page 68 that exact quotation from Dallin Oaks. So yeah. uh, maybe this is time to advertise a great book <laughs> about <Bob> Miller. <laughs> well, let's turn our attention to Luke. Let's go over to Luke. And let's go to chapter 10. starting with verse 25. Once again, Craig, let's do this. Let's have you, the parable of the Good Samaritan, paraphrase this for us, and then let's talk about the particulars within it. A uh, man is traveling down the uh, notoriously winding uh, dirt road through the desert, uh, descending from Jerusalem to Jericho. The lowest Where, spot, right? Sorry? The lowest spot. Almost. You're very close to the Dead Sea from there. Yeah. Yep. Um, and um, bandits often hid around corners behind bushes. And this one is mugged and left by the side of the road for dead, um, or at least quite injured. Eventually, along come two members of the Jewish clergy, a priest and a Levite, but they simply pass by. We're not told why. Uh, maybe the man looked like he was dead and they didn't want to suffer corpse uncleanness. We don't know. But finally, a Samaritan, and the key to the story is to realize the Samaritans and the Jews were, were enemies, were hostile to each other. Nobody ever thought of naming the hospital Good Samaritan in those days. Um, and uh, he is the one who comes along and helps and bandages him and puts him on his beast of burden, takes him to a nearby inn, uh, gives him his credit card. I, I mean, says, uh, whatever uh, uh, I owe you when I come back, I'll, I'll pay you. And um, Jesus then asks the lawyer that had question him about who my neighbor is, uh, turns the question around, who proved neighbor to the man? And uh, the man can't bring himself to utter the words, the Samaritan, but the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. You know, it, it, it's, it could be a sweet story if he wasn't a Samaritan. Yes. If a, if a kindly Jew came along, and help the man. It's a good story. Adding Samaritan to it puts a bit of a barb in it, doesn't it? Meaning, as Jesus says so many times, one day you're going to be surprised the number of people, the kind of people that are going to make it into the kingdom of heaven, you know. Um, and so I, I hear this and I think maybe those of us who are hyper-religious but haven't developed the kind of love in our heart toward our fellow yeah. uh, men and women. Um, we're going to be like, we're gonna be like those there. people on the left-hand side of Jesus. 
Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart, whose book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, goes through, has gone through five editions, um, contemporized the story by uh, making the victim uh, an evangelical pastor mugged on his way home from church. And um, after various upstanding people in the community pass by and do nothing, it's a um, lesbian black feminist who comes to help. Um, <laughs> you got to figure out who you most like to hate and make that person the <laughs> character of Samaritan. If you're going to have the same the same dynamic, Ken Bailey, who was a, an American Baptist missionary in the Middle East throughout his career and and wrote a couple of wonderful books on the parable, says that in ministering largely to um, Arabic speaking Christians in Lebanon. He took him 20 years before he built up the courage to make this an Orthodox Jew coming to rescue a dying Arab because he wasn't sure he would be able to leave campus safely after that. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I've mentioned on this program before, but it's one of my favorite sayings. Uh, Philip Yancey in his book, uh, the Jesus I never knew mm. what, what just it was life changing for me, but he says something in the book. Uh, I'm paraphrasing it, but he said, what was it about Jesus that drew people to him that just drew them to him, especially the most the ones that were basically on the outskirts of society, whether it's the prostitute or the uh, the shepherd or the tax collector. Uh, what was it about Jesus that drew people to him? And then he asked the hard question. And why is it that too often those people don't feel comfortable with us? Right. And then he said, I, I fear that sometimes we create a climate of respectability in our churches. And, and they don't come because they don't feel like they fit. And I think this is one of those parables that Jesus is giving and saying, well, you better have it start to fit because... Uh, there's something much deeper than how much religious truth you know, and that is who and what you are, what kind of person you are. Yeah. We were. All right. Go ahead. We were involved, uh, my wife and I, for about 15 years with uh, an urban church in Denver with the delightful name straight out of 1 Corinthians 4.13 of Scum of the Earth Church. And uh, we, had, Church. we had... Uh, homeless people and we had uh, people with tattoos and body piercing and uh, multicolored hair and every kind of outfit you could imagine. And I would say about half of the people who went there, they were mostly men and women in their 20s and 30s, had been brought up in, uh, in an evangelical, conservative evangelical congregation and because of their own life choices uh, perceived, often rightly, sometimes maybe not so, that they simply were no longer welcome mm -hmm. in any context, inside or outside of the church, mm -hmm. with their parents and their parents' friends. And I, this is not an advertisement, but my wife, Sean, and I just went to see The Jesus Revolution, the movie. Mm. The story of Chuck Smith and the 
the rise of the Jesus movement. And, it, and it's very much along the lines of what you're yes. talking about as these people, the hippies come into this congregation and the people are saying, oh my gosh, what, you know, what, what's going on here? Yeah. Uh, Jesus spent a lot of time with the types of people that the Pharisees and the scribes didn't think he should spend much time with. Okay. Let's go to, uh, you know, Let's go to Rich Fool, chapter 12 of Luke, parable of the rich fool. We'll take too long on this one. Um, let's start. I'll start. I'll read this one. Luke chapter, uh, not chapter 12, right? Yep. 12 verses. I'm going to read 13 through 21. Mm -hmm. And one of the company said unto him, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, man, who made me a judge over who made me a judge or a divider over you separator and he said unto them take heed and beware of covetousness for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth and he spake a parable unto them saying the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully and he thought within himself saying what shall i do because i have no room where to bestow my fruits and he said this will i do I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will, there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much good, much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? Hmm. Um, this is an interesting parable to me in the sense, Craig, that it doesn't, the lesson isn't given here. In other words, you, you have to look at it and say, okay, what, what was the, pro it isn't, what's the problem with the man? You know, why is he in trouble with Jesus? Why don't you, why don't you comment on this parable? <laughs> yeah, if, if, if it wasn't for the last verse, it would be easy to say, oh, the man is being condemned for being, being successful. a wise steward of this bumper crop that he did not expect. But when Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God, then you assume Although he probably was Jewish, he probably thought of himself as part of the covenant community. He wasn't practicing. Um, he, he had no genuine relationship with the living God. And um, as we talked about with the parable of the sower, riches can, can do that to a person. I was reminded of a Book of Mormon past that uh, Latter-day Saints will have heard a number of times that seems to apply to this whole thing. Jacob, one of the Book of Mormon prophets, says, Think of your brethren like unto yourselves, and be familiar with all, and free with your substance, that they may be rich like you. But before ye seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after you've obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain riches if you seek them. And you will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, mm -hmm. to liberate the captive, administer relief, to the sick and the afflicted. You can hear a little bit, Greg, in there of uh, of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 6. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Yeah, it, it 
or we who live in uh, in prosperous places, uh, we hear a, a parable about a, a bumper crop and a farm and yep. growing up in Illinois and having relatives in Iowa, I think of the big cornfields and uh, well, of course, you get a bumper crop. You want to you want to do something uh, responsible with that, so it doesn't go to waste. If we were in Galilee, where Josephus says there were two hundred separate tiny little villages, you were not far away from a lot of poor people, and people still practiced gleaning, where you left the edges of your field so the poor could come out from the villages and help themselves. They had to make some effort. They had to put in some work. It wasn't a handout, but they didn't have to pay the market rate. What's striking about the rich fool, especially in the Greek, where um, you can count the number of times either I or a first person singular verb ending appears, is that eight times in this very short passage, the man says, I will do this, and I will do that, and I will. It's all about me. What about the 80% of the people who lived uh, hand to mouth, close to, or even slightly below the poverty line? Not a thought for distributing any of the surplus to them. Yep, yep. This this is another chilling parable. Um, um, let's go finally to uh, the parable of the let's call it the parables of lost things. Uh, chapter 15 of Luke. Can I read from you? Huh? May absolutely. I quote you here? Yeah, absolutely. Every Everybody knows the story. Um, and, you, and you know, most of them know it in King James language. Uh, <laughs> more power to them. Uh, I stumble <laughs> over half the words. Um, <laughs> Robert Millet, Lost and Found, page 15. I, I don't know of a better summary because one of the things that I've done in my work on parables is, is to try to say, to understand what Jesus was meaning, read the parables through the eyes of the main characters. And that's exactly what you do here. The parable of the prodigal son is a story about a wandering son about a quote-unquote faithful son, about a waiting father. It's a story about each of us as the prodigal son, for we, quote, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, close quote, Romans 3.23. It's a story about each of us as the older brother, for we must decide at one time or another how we will respond to the returning prodigal. And it's a story about each of us who aspires to godliness, for somewhere down the road of life, if we are serious, about our Christian discipleship, we must choose to assume the role of the waiting father. Some of us that have had wandering children, that that, uh, ring, that bell rings loudly, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure. Okay, do uh, you want to read it? Chapter 15, verse, oh. well, boy, of course we got, we have first the the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Right. And and uh, I think the paraphrase is, is adequate here. The uh, younger brother asks for his share of the inheritance, which nobody 
did. That was like saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Mm -hmm. And the dad grants it nevertheless. And he goes off uh, to a foreign land, which means Gentile, uh, non-Jewish. And he obviously didn't keep kosher. Um, he winds up wishing he could eat pig fodder, um, has squandered everything, and finally comes to his senses and says, my dad's hired servants have it better than I do. I'm going to go home and, and not ask to be reinstated as a son, but just as a hired servant. Goes home, he starts his repentance speech. The dad interrupts him and says, you were lost and now you're found. You were dead and now alive and throws the giant biggest party anybody's ever seen with the fattened calf reserved for a special occasion like this. The older brother working in the fields hears music and partying and wants to know what's going on, finds out, and the guy is livid. And uh, the father has to come out and be unusually solicitous to him as well. And uh, the same refrain, your brother was uh, lost and now found, alive and now dead. Um, and unlike a lot of Jesus' parables, he leaves it open-ended. What did the older brother do? It's Not the open-ended. It's the open-ended parable. In other words, and, and, and yeah, it strikes me that way. You read it and you say, "And how do I fit into this? And what would I have done? How would I have responded to my ever so uh, my my ever so wicked brother?" You know. Um. I, I, I think I think that in so many ways this is like the plan of salvation. You know. You come to earth, you, you face temptations, you, you, you lose ground, and uh, thankfully through it all, even after you've scandalized family, you, you still have a waiting father. In many ways, in many ways, I think this really is about the waiting father, because we're talking there about God. Um, yeah. It occurs to me too, Craig, that the parable of the um, lost coin hmm. is an example of I was not careful enough. I was, I was, uh, I didn't, I didn't watch myself carefully. I lost the darn thing, you know. The parable of the lost sheep. Sheep are pretty dumb, and they roam off on their own. They don't know what they're doing. But the parable of the, of the lost son, the prodigal son, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. And he leaves. But but the point of it all, of course, is all of us are in one of those or many of those categories. Uh, Joseph Smith made an interesting point once. He said, How do you interpret a parable? He said, The way I do it is I ask the question, what brought on the statement from Jesus? We would say, What is the context here? And the context here is Jesus is eating, being criticized for eating and drinking with sinners. Yeah. And, the, and he uses what I, I I don't think this is inappropriate to say. He uses some stiff sarcasm in, in uh -huh. this, uh, you know, when, when he says things like uh, joy shall be in heaven over one sinner than repenteth and over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance, you know, um, as if there I, were such people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a, to me, it's it's a, it's a powerful message. This is a little something from Elder Holland again. He talked about this one, too, in a general conference in uh, April of 2002. I can't read it all, so I'll just read a little bit. 
The older brother was angry and would not go in, therefore came his father out and entreated him. You know the conversation they then had. Surely for this father, the pain over a wayward child who had run from home and wallowed with swine is now compounded with the realization that this older, wiser brother, the younger son's childhood hero, as often it is, is angry that his brother has come home. No, I correct myself. The son is not so much angry that the other has come home as he is angry that his parents are so happy about it. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Feeling yeah. unappreciated and perhaps more than a little self-pity, this dutiful son, and he is wonderfully dutiful, <laughs> forgets for a moment that he has never had to know filth or dare, fear or self-loathing. He forgets for a moment that every calf on the ranch is already his, and so are all the robes in the closet and every ring in the drawer. He forgets for a moment that his faithfulness and, and always will be rewarded. Know he has virtually everything and who has in his hardworking, wonderful way earned it. He lacks the one thing that might make him the complete man of the Lord. He nearly is. He has yet to come to the compassion and mercy, the charitable breadth of vision, to see that this is not a rival re returning. It's and, and since we haven't disagreed on anything today, um, yeah. and part of, of the literature I received about these uh, conversations was agreements and disagreements. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to tweak that quotation and say, maybe by his attitude at the end, the older brother shows that this is not the one thing he's lacking. It is what is keeping him outside of the kingdom altogether. Yeah. Um, yeah. That one can, thing is a big thing. You can have all the dutifulness you want, but if your attitude isn't right, it may not count for anything. My old friend, Robert Matthews, um, would often talk about the difference between the interpretation of a parable and the application of a parable. This is a parable, for example, could have many applications. Right. And you could give you could get seven sermons on this, each pointing in a little different direction. But he would say there's only one interpretation, or should be, and that's what caused it in the first place, what brought it on. That's right. In that sense, this is a par these are parables of chastisement. They're cha he's chastising the Pharisees and the scribes who are criticizing him for eating and drinking with sinners. You alluded to the, the context of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Uh, I think another thing that's interesting when you look at the, the three parables together, um, the sheep really can't be expected to find its way home. A coin has no agency. <laughs> It's not going to turn around and roll backwards. You got to go get it. You got it. And, and so it's all about divine initiative in the first two. Um, is Jesus changing things in the, the parable of prodigal? Well, to some degree, but maybe not as much as we might think. How is it that one day the father happens to see at the edge of town a long way away? his younger son returning. He has to have been watching and right. waiting for him. 
And unless he lives in the tallest building in town and can see every road from his rooftop, maybe each day he goes to the edge of town where the road left, where he knows his son left to go to a foreign country and hope against hope, keeps looking, keeps looking. Is, is the boy, might he just finally come back and one day sees him and all is different. Well said. I, I, I'm thinking of some of the things Kenneth Bailey wrote about this this parable, and I, if what he's saying is true, and it sounds awfully good to me, and that is, it was inappropriate for a man, a dignified man, to run in society. Yes. yes. Thus, purposely, the father runs to get the son. He says, perhaps to bring the 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 scandal upon himself, so as to pull some of it away from the scandal that'll come with that son coming back. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I want to take the attention here. Get it on yeah. me rather than my boy. And that that continues when um, even throwing a party wouldn't have to be that horrible. But there's not a hint of finding out if this kid is sincere. They, he doesn't even let him finish his repentance speech. He immediately calls for the party. And um, what if the guy has come back to dupe the two men still at home out of even more? You don't know until a little time has passed, but the father doesn't allow for that. No, no, there isn't any. Okay, sit down. Here's what's going to happen. Yeah, you can come back. You do this again. You're out of here. You know, there's none of this. That's right. Well, well, you can come back, but you're only going to get a piece of the inheritance. That's for sure. No, yeah. he's already shown. He's got the ring, the robe, and the fatted calf. He's treating him with with dignity, with respect, yeah. and love. Yeah. To me, I, I can't read this parable without getting emotional because because I know myself to be mm. a parable on so many occasions. You know. Uh, a parable uh, i'm a par a walking parable of the prodigal son and i think we all are uh it's it's only a time i mean it's only a matter of trying to figure out sometimes i'm the prodigal sometimes I, i'm the older brother and sometimes maybe hopefully i'll be the waiting father but this just and about while i've been blessed not to have had a, a prodigal child yet um i have been an older brother i am the older brother of two my younger brother came back to the Lord at age 49. And uh, in case this should ever get back to him, though it's highly unlikely, <laughs> I won't go into any more details, but um, all the emotions of all the attention that he got. Um, yeah, they're human. They're there. Craig, uh, let's take you take one minute and and what what distill what you think we learned today. What 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 stands out to you? You don't have to all put, you don't have to come up with a, uh, a conclusion that puts all the all the parables together. But what stands out to you most about what we've talked about? To borrow the words from the hymn, uh, "Amazing Grace." Uh, people have all different conceptions of God. They have all different conceptions of human responsibility, 
what constitutes sin, what constitutes forgiveness. And had we kept on going, I am struck by how if you ask the question, who is Jesus consistently the harshest toward and who is he consistently surprisingly the most gracious toward it's a complete inversion of the people we usually put in those categories it's the far right wing upstanding religious leader who knows better and doesn't do it that gets the criticism and it's the runaway the rebellious uh, person who sometimes knows exactly what he's doing and sometimes not um that there may be 99 in the fold but we've got to go after that one stephen stephen covey used to say the key to the 90 and nine is the one <laughs> yes the key to the 90 and nine is the one may not work in grade school arithmetic class but uh, it works <laughs> theologically works with god yes my my appreciation thanks and love for my dear beloved friend craig blumberg i love you my brother and thankful that you're going to be with us over the months this is exciting thank you for joining thank you for having me uh we remind you just before we quit that um um the, the john a widso foundation is a 503 501c company therefore we operate by uh, an, um, a nonprofit operate by uh, generous donations from people like you who view or listen. Uh, no one's really being paid uh, here. And so any donations you'd like to make, we'd be grateful for. Next month, our friend and colleague, uh, Professor Mark Maddox from the School of Theology at uh, Point Loma University will join us again. Craig, we'll look forward to seeing you within a month or two. And uh, you're always welcome. Um, one of the things that just comes through all of these, but especially those latter ones, is is uh, the thing we, the love of God. There's a place, uh, there's a place in the Book of Mormon where an angel asked Nephi, "Knowest thou the condescension of God?" Mm. It's a, it's a, it's a poignant question. Do you understand what it means for God to leave heaven? come down, uh, we sing in a hymn, comes to earth and be like man almost, uh, empty himself, as we'd say in Philippians, and become one of us. Um, if, no, if nothing Why else almost? comes out of this, the love of God. Why almost? Say again? Why almost? He does become one of us. Almost in the sense of he did have some advantages over us. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> he was he was fully mortal, but yeah. he had some advantages. So okay. we we uh, celebrate the love of God and strive to be uh, on the right side of of who's helping whom. Uh, thanks for watching. <laughs>